Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. I can't wait to dig into God's Word a little bit with you. If you have your copy of the Bible, uh, we will be in John chapter 1. So go ahead and find John chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, that's totally fine. Uh, All the words that you will need will be on the screen behind me as well. I want you to know that if you are a first-time guest or uh, you've been with us a couple times and haven't received a gift from our Connects table, we have a small gift and a gift bag we would love to give to you. Uh, we also have several copies of God's Word if you want to pick one of those up before you leave today. I'm really excited for this gathering. Uh, many of you know that every single year uh, we celebrate during this time the coming of Christ as the light of the world. And one of the ways that we symbolize that is by lighting a candle to represent Christ entering the world and and then watching as the light from that single candle passes from hand to hand. The room is illuminated in the same way that as Christ came as the light of the world, bringing that light as the life of men, that this good news has spread throughout the world all all the way to the point that we, 2,000 years later, can be celebrating the birth of the Son of God, his life, his death in our place, and his glorious resurrection. Now he sits on high, he's reigning and ruling, and we look forward to the day that he comes again. This is a beautiful tradition that we get to celebrate every single year. And I imagine that whenever you come to this time of year, there are many traditions that you celebrate as a family. Maybe these are traditions that uh, you've been practicing since childhood, Uh, maybe building gingerbread houses or, you know, going by somewhere where you could grab a cup of hot chocolate and then driving around the neighborhood, looking at different Christmas lights, whatever you do as just kind of a Christmas celebration. Maybe there are things that Um, You do as a family, you watch a Christmas movie like Frosty the Snowman or Elf. Maybe you watch Die Hard because to you that's a Christmas movie. And if that's the case, no judgment there. Uh, Maybe maybe you'd say, you know, there are things specific to Cincinnati that I love to do. I like to go to the Cincinnati Zoo Lights or go ice skating on Fountain Square. We all have traditions. Maybe for you it would be uh, starting the tradition in your home of reading the Christmas story around the Christmas tree, maybe from the Jesus Storybook Bible or something like that this Christmas. Maybe that's something that you do each and every year to commemorate that time. As Jimmy referenced earlier, this season is a a time of tradition, even for the church. Throughout history, the church has observed this season and called it Advent. It literally comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means waiting. It's a reminder that there were promises all throughout Scripture. From the moment that first sin entered the world, uh, the relationship between God and man was fractured, and God in his kindness said, there will be one who will come one day who will make all things right. It's the promise that was given to Abraham that there would be one born who would bless all the families of the earth. It's the promise that was given to King David that there would one day become a righteous ruler who would reign forever in justice and in mercy. Promise after promise given. Prophets speaking this glorious hope into the life of Israel, into God's people. And then for 400 years, there was a time of silence. There was waiting. Who would come? When would he come? When would this be? And then on that first Christmas morning, Christ the Savior was born. The world erupting in hope, promise fulfilled. And so we celebrate that together, this Advent season. 
we also recognize that this is a time of waiting even for us. That as those who hold on to the truth that Christ has come, we also look forward to the day that Christ is coming. That there is one who will descend as he ascended and he is coming to make all things new. That all that even is present in this world as darkness will one day be made light by the Son of God who is coming. I hope that in our time together, I can express to you that this is more than just a season of tradition that we celebrate. That Advent or the coming of Christ, that the meaning of Christmas is not just tradition to practice, but truth to behold, that Christ has come. Maybe you're sitting here and whatever you think about the, the incarnation, the fact that the eternally pre-existent Son of God took on flesh, you think, well, there, there hasn't really been a time that I really stopped to pause, to really consider what claim is being made by that reality. When was the last time you truly stopped to think about he who was never created, he who always was becoming man? I think sometimes maybe whenever we consider Christianity, we think that something like creation and, and God speaking all things in existence would be one of the, the loftiest thoughts to behold or things to consider. Uh, maybe you would say, well, I almost think that the resurrection of Christ or the fact that he could be the substitute for all sins on, on the Friday that he was crucified is hard to grasp. So the miracles of Jesus seem hard to behold. But could it be perhaps that the truth of Christmas is one of those most amazing truths that we find in Scripture? Author J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this. He says, It, the most difficult truth to believe, lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. I want to show you through the words of Scripture and in our time together that only the Son of God become man could be the Savior of the world. And that is not just a truth to behold or, or some sort of philosophical, philosophical claim to grapple with. That is what gives you life. That is the hope of the world he is the one who is the Prince of Peace, who has the power to bring peace to the nations. And he has come to take on flesh, to become human, to rescue humanity. Think about this for a moment, this awe-inducing mystery. That he who is and has always been the Alpha and the Omega was born. And as a child had to learn how to sing the alphabet. That he who crafted the stars and spoke the universe, setting it where it is, became a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. Uh, think about this for a moment. He who had no beginning has a birthday. Uh, the fact that he who rules over all creation came into the world that he created to call a peasant girl mom. What humility Christ had. What hope this gives us. I think perhaps whenever it comes to the doctrine of 
the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas, you have two different responses. Perhaps you're here and, and you're not a Christian and you're thinking, well, do, do I really have to believe that, that he who is Jesus was truly God? I mean, can I just learn from his teachings? Can I, can I just say that he was a good example for a way to live? Do I really have to, to affirm this truth that scripture teaches? And what I hope for you to see is that this is the truth that brings life. This is that truth in which makes all other things make sense. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've been a Christian for a long time. Whenever it comes to Christmas season, you just kind of go through the motions. You don't really stop to behold this wondrous mystery that the Son of God became man, took on flesh, and entered into the world. Now, could it almost be like a, a, you know, a new way to go to work in which the first time you drive it, you pass by this building with beautiful architecture. It's ornate, and you stop, and you think, man, that's such a, such a beautiful building. But then after days, weeks, months, you pass by that same building practically unfazed, as if it was never there all along. Could this be a time in which you behold this beautiful truth afresh, that it causes you to worship God for who he is, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum, here's my desire, is that as a result of our time together and over the next few weeks, that you would worship God as never before as we rehearse these well-worn truths about who God is and who Christ is. I think we worship because of this, that Jesus reconciles us to God by being God and becoming like us. Why is this truth so worthy of our attention? Because Jesus reconciles us to God, brings us back into a personal relationship with God, the relationship that you and I were created for by being God and becoming like us. And with that being said, let's look to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and read this together. The Word of God says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to point out a, a few things to you as we read this passage. Uh, perhaps you think, well, is it necessary to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And what I want us to see here is that it is plain, as Scripture teaches, that, that Jesus was both truly God, with no beginning, eternally pre-existing, but that he became man, truly God and truly human. Uh, this doctrine is described as the hypostatic union, that that he was not 50% man and 50% God, that there was not some mixture, no, but that he truly was God in essence, in every sense of the word, and that he truly became man. Now, you might be wondering, okay, well, is this a, a new development perhaps in, in what the church has believed? Is this something that, that we've stumbled upon as just kind of a way to, to make sense of it all in, in recent years? And yet what I want you to see as we consider 
the meaning of Christmas and even find these words in John chapter one, that this is what the Bible has always taught us about the person of Christ, that, that he is truly God and truly man. We see that in the pages of John one. We see that in the letters of Paul. We see that even in the early church holding this truth intact, even whenever it was under fire. You see, there was a controversy in, in the early years of the church that began. It was led by a guy named Arius. And up, up to this point, the deity of Christ was primarily uncontested. It was clear through Scripture and, and held by the church that he truly is the Son of God. And yet, there was this claim that, no, no, he was, he was just man. He wasn't truly, he wasn't fully God. This couldn't be. And so the church came together in a council. It's called the Council of Nicaea. And, and this wasn't a council designed to form what the church believed, but rather to cement in history what the church had always held near. And this is what they wrote about Christ the Lord. They said, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is what the church has believed through the ages. This is the creed we confess and hold near. This is who we worship as the Son of God. We treasure this portrait of our Savior and consider again what it means to believe these things about who Christ is. So John here, as he picks up his pen to write, he tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But we ask, why did John write? Every time we look at a new book of the Bible, uh, we like to describe it as reading the envelope before you get to the letter. If you've ever gotten a letter in the mail, you, you pick up the envelope and you read it. You want to know if this is a bill from Duke Energy or if this is a letter from Grandma. You're going to open that envelope with kind of two different uh, mindsets. And so here we want to read the envelope just a little bit. Okay, who is John? Why did he write this? Who is he writing to? What's going on whenever he writes this book? Well, we know that John was one of the dear friends of Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the apostles. That's helpful for us to know as we look at these pages. We're not getting uh, an account from a distance. This isn't secondhand information. No, this is one who walked with Jesus, the Son of God. He is one who was near to Christ. And he's going to tell us about who he is. Now, who is he, is he writing to? Well, he's writing to the entire world. He's writing to both the Jew, who is familiar with all of the promises given to the people of God through the ages, and he's writing to the Greek, who maybe thought that uh, there were many gods or that God was just an impersonal force in the world. We see that he's going to declare to each and every one of them that Jesus is the Son of God who has come. 
Why was he writing? Well, he is very clear at the end of his book the purpose for which he is writing. He says in John 20, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What is at stake in taking these truths to heart? It is life. It is the difference between light and darkness, life and death. And John says, if you believe what I am writing to you about the Son of God, then you will see that he is the Son of God and you will have life in his name. I wonder if that's what you're searching for this morning. I wonder if you're sitting here right now and you would say, if I'm honest, if I'm humble, I would admit that I've sought for life in a million different places. I've sought for life by trying to be approved by everybody. I've sought for life in, in, in trying to be the highest achiever in my office. I've sought for life in uh, achieving this relationship or, or checking these boxes. I've sought for life even by practicing all of these rules of religion and yet I never feel good enough. Maybe you have sought for life would you see that the search stops where your recognition of Christ as the Son of God begins? Maybe you're sitting here and you say, I, I believe this, but, but perhaps this is just something that you affirm kind of at the beginning of your walk with Christ, and what I want you to see is that this life is not just something to be received, but a gift to live in every single day. Christian, your daily joy and peace and security comes from walking in relationship with Christ who is the Son of God. Remember this truth afresh that you would abide in him, that you would walk in the joy of knowing Christ and having life in his name. You see, we, we see where John is going here because he's going to begin at that beginning. If you were to consider week one, uh, this week and week two, next week, in a single statement, I think you would say it something like this. This week, we're going to walk away saying, I can't believe that this God became human. And next week, we're going to say, I can't believe that God became this human. The first thing we see in, the, in this is the deity of Christ through Christ's eternal pre-existence. The first observation we can make here in this text so we know Christ is divine, that he truly is God because he is eternally pre-existent. What does John tell us? In the beginning was the Word. Now that has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? If you're familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, perhaps the, perhaps the first book of the Bible, whenever you read the words in the beginning, you think, I've heard that before. That sounds familiar. And you think back to Genesis 1 where we read, in the beginning, God. Now, what is John doing? He just unrolled the scroll to Genesis 1 and hit copy-paste. He just plagiarized Moses so that we would see that in the beginning, before anything began, Christ already was. You, you look at this, and, and you're almost waiting for the sentence to continue with a little bit more information, but there's no preposition to tell us the timestamp of, of when he is talking about. He, he doesn't say, in the beginning of the reign of King David. He doesn't say, in the beginning of the exile of Israel. No, he simply says, in the beginning. 
the lack of the preposition there tells us all that we need to know, that this is the beginning of it all. And before anything was, Christ already was. He's eternal. He is pre-existent. He is the one who is and will always be because there is never a time that he was not. Doesn't this make your heart explode with worship? Whenever you think about the only one who can give eternal life because he truly is eternal. We see here that solid doctrine leads to doxology. It leads us to praise, recognizing that the savior of, of the world, the son of God is the only one fit to save and he has come. Who does John say he is? He says that he was the word. Why the word? Why, why doesn't he say in the beginning was the Messiah? Why doesn't he say the, the son of God? Why doesn't he use some other phrase? Well, here he uses the Greek word logos, and I want you to see just how intentional John is here, but even more so the Holy Spirit who is uh, completely overseeing uh, the scripture as it is being written. Why does he say logos? Because he is writing to two groups of people, isn't he? He's writing to the Jew, who whenever they would have thought about the word, they would have thought about those opening pages of creation when the voice of God is ringing through the heavens. They would have thought about words, God, the, God, the word of God in that way. Uh, they would have thought about the way that God has chosen to reveal himself through speaking and through writing his word on stone tablets, through the words of prophets and priests, they would have said, God makes himself known through the word. And here they see that the word has become flesh. He's also writing to the Greeks. Now, now how would those who were not of, of the Jewish background, people who had faith in God through the ages, how would they have viewed a word like logos? One scholar puts it like this. He said, even the common people in this time saw the logos as a philosophical identification of power. It was almost as if it was a non-personal force in the universe as being responsible for just the way things were. But then John comes along and says, let me introduce you to the fact that the logos is not an impersonal force. The logos is a person. The logos is a person, not an impersonal reality, but a personal God who came into the world in the man Jesus, not just a concept, but a person. See, John is writing to the world to say, you want to know God? See that God became flesh, and he who is the Son of God was the Word, making himself known. Not an impersonal force, but the second person of the Trinity. To those Jews who saw the Word of God through the ages, longing to see the glory of God, he says, behold, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word not simply spoken or written, but in the flesh for your sake. Some people might ask, well, what did Jesus teach this? Did Jesus teach that he always was, that he was eternally preexistent before all things began? And we find in John 8, 58, that as he's talking to the Pharisees, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they say, how is someone that was mentioned all the way back in the pages of Genesis, a person in which you could precede, they picked up rocks to stone him as he makes the claim not only that he was before Abraham, but that he is the great I am, that he is indeed 
the same one that spoke out of the burning bush, that he is the same one whose presence was made known in the tabernacle throughout the Old Testament, that he is God and he always was. Here in this passage, we see that Christ is before all things. Before anything began, he already was. Now let me ask, is he before all things in your life? If he is before all things in all of creation, is if he takes full priority over all the stars in the sky, the mountains that were formed and the ocean that exists, is he, if he is first, if he is before all things in all creation, is he first in your life? Is his voice first in your life? You see, if, if light was born through the power of God's word and the universe is sustained by the word of his power, how much more dependent are you upon Christ as the bread of life? How much more do you need to hear his voice daily? Uh, do you believe that in the moments that you are starving and your soul aches, that the word of God is the breath of life through which Christ speaks? Whenever you feel exhausted and tired in search of refuge, do you see that the words of Christ bring healing and comfort? Do you recognize in that moment in which you have sinned, that you are weighed down by regret, that, that is the very same moment that Christ stretches out his arms to receive you and to wash you clean, to purify you as white as freshly fallen snow? Do you long for this word? Is it first in your life? Is his presence first in your life? As you consider scripture, does it make you long to be with, with who Jesus is? As you read stories like the way that, that Jesus interacted with the woman who was caught in adultery, uh, the way that he comes alongside her and comforts her to make her whole, the way that Christ extends his hand to the leper who was an outcast in his culture, places his hand on his shoulder so that he could be restored, that Christ is the good shepherd who is near to his sheep? Do you long for his presence? Do you long to experience his presence by worshiping with his people, by opening up his word, by running to him in prayer? Is his mission first in your life? You see, Jesus is before all things. Is he the first thing in our calendar, in our priorities? Or, or do we spend our time first kind of figuring out, okay, where am I gonna fit in my hobbies, my, my vacation, my bucket list items, and just kind of leave God the leftovers. Yet here we see that Christ deserves our first and foremost, that we not only want to be with him, we want to be like him, we want to live on mission with him, we want to consider those around us that don't know him. Maybe that looks like something as simple as, as you preparing a, a packet of hot chocolate or homemade cookies and taking them to a neighbor and say, you know what, uh, I, I know we've never met before, but uh, our, this Christmas, our, our family or me and, me and my group of friends, we're just you know, giving a couple gifts to people in our neighborhood, and uh, I'm a Christian. Is there any way that I could be praying for you today? Maybe it's thinking about the conversations that you'll have with family and friends around the holidays. Uh, maybe it's, it's being generous to someone so that you can begin a conversation about the generosity of God through the giving of his only son. Maybe you joining the mission of God this month looks like being a part of what we're doing through Operation 1-8, that we have said there are four church plants throughout the world that are in hard to reach places and we wanna be a part of that, so we're giving toward it. 
Uh, maybe you'd say, I-, I want to be a part of the mission of God and uh, reaching our city through the health and wellness event that we are doing next year, uh, through having a consistent presence in this city. So I want to use the gifts and, and the treasure that God has given me to make him known in the world. What does it look like to put God's people first? If Christ is before all things, what does it look like to put Christ first through his body, the people? This is not just a a service to attend, but a family to belong to. That whenever we enter this world, we are aware of the needs of those around us. We long to serve those around us. We ask questions because we want to know how we can be praying for our brother and sister in the faith. Christ is before all things, and we reflect this in our life by prioritizing his word, his presence, his mission, his people. We see that before all things, he already was. And we also see that he is God. The second observation from this passage is that Jesus is God. We read in the creed that he was the son of God, God from God, true God from true God. Here we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, at first glance, those those two statements in the end of verse 1 almost seem like they could be saying two different things. If I came up to you and I was like, hi, I'm Terry Lee, and I was with Terry Lee, you would be like, what is going on? Like, are you okay? Should we call a doctor? Is everything okay? And yet what we see is that This statement makes perfect sense whenever you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, that Christ both is God, we could say he was God, and at the same time that he was with God. He's with God the Father throughout all eternity. He's with God the Spirit throughout all eternity, that he both was God and was with God. Here we see this unique relationship. Uh, You observe it in uh, a a part of Scripture, like the baptism of Jesus, where you see that he is baptized, he goes down into the water, he comes up, and and the voice of God the Father rings through the heavens and says, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Uh, We see this beautiful doctrine expressed as Jesus gives the Great Commission and says, baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We affirm that God is one in essence, three in persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here we see that Jesus is fully God. This is important for us to note because there are uh, people who teach doctrines that sound very similar to ours. Perhaps we would, we would hear them say that Jesus is a God and, and have no qualms with that. And yet what we know is that uh, those who hold to the faith of Jehovah's Witness or Mormons, uh, they they insert uh, the the small letter A and then take that lowercase g and insert it where this uppercase g should be in Scripture. Uh, They're distorting the original text and and the way that Scripture was written to say, well, well, he just kind of was accepted as a God later. He was a man who um, God, God was really pleased with, and so then he just kind of received this title, or, or through his works, through his achievements, he, he was considered a God. And yet here we look at Scripture, hold this in our hands, and say, no, there, there is never a time in which the second person of the Trinity was not God. He is the Son of God. 
We see throughout Scripture that even Thomas falls on his face before the risen Christ and says, you are my Lord and my God. And Christ receives the worship that was due his name. We see that he is able to do what only God can do. As he casts out demons, as he causes raging sea to be calm, it is evident that he is truly and fully God. But maybe you'd say, well, why does it matter if I believe that he is fully God? I want to give you three reasons. First, because only God could bear the full penalty of sin. You see, if, if a normal man suffered the full weight and penalty of sin, they would be completely obliterated. Consider for a moment who God is. He is a righteous judge. If God was to say that the wages of sin is death, the punishment of sin is death, and then just overlook that punishment, he would not be a righteous judge. There would have to be one to absorb that punishment, and to absorb it for the whole world, he would have to be one who was completely righteous with no sin in himself. Only God could do that. So the Son of God took on flesh, lived a perfectly sinless life, was completely righteous, and bore the full penalty of God. The full wrath of God poured out upon him, and yet he was not obliterated, but yet endured it on our behalf. Darkness fell, but the light could not be overcome by it. Hebrews 2.9 says it in this way, that we see him, speaking of Christ, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you find yourself here this morning carrying around the weight of sin? Maybe you're here crippled by regret. Maybe you feel like you could never measure up to your family's expectations of who you are or who you would become. Maybe you're in the later years of your life, and as you look back, you think there are a million things that you would have different, you would have done different. And whenever you think about your life, you think, you know, there, there are things that I'm hiding, there are things that only I know, and you're just kind of carrying this around, you feel constantly weighed down by it. And what this passage says is that Jesus has taken that sin upon himself in a way that only he could. That isn't your guilt to bear. That isn't your shame to be labeled by, but that Christ, in his perfection, took on your weakness and your sin so that he could declare you innocent and you would no longer be seen as an enemy of God or an orphan, but welcomed as a son or daughter. Only God could do that. It matters that he is fully God because only God can save man. Only God can save man. We can't save ourselves. I think about the first time that uh, we ever gave our, our two-year-old Charlie, um, you know, yogurt in a cup. We had always done pouches, like squeeze pouches. And, and that's whenever we found out it's important to use squeeze pouches because it's just a total mess whenever it's like a cup and spoon. The motor skills required for a two-year-old to operate a spoon are just like unbelievable, okay? So, so he, he's going for it and it's like, 
spoon in the yogurt, but also hand in the yogurt, makes its way up to the mouth. Then it's like yogurt on the face, and he realizes there's, there's yogurt on my face. And so then he takes the hand that also has yogurt on it, tries to wipe the face. Now it's just more yogurt smeared, okay? And so what do you do when your hand has yogurt on it, your face has yogurt on it? You wipe it on your hair, right? So it, and then so it's yogurt and the curls, just like this ongoing like mess becoming more mess, becoming more mess. And even if you've never struggled to eat yogurt, you're like, that kind, of, that kind of sounds familiar. That kind of sounds like whenever I try to clean myself up. And I'm like, man, I'm really in a bad spot. And then, you know what, so, so you know what, I just need to forget about this. So you start binge watching a show, and then you're like, oh, no, now I'm, now I'm like missing all these responsibilities. Or you try to, you're like, I'm just going to self-medicate uh, for a little bit. Like these, these pills are for anxiety. Or I mean, just one drink is fine. And, and you're like, oh no, like now this is like a whole thing I've, I've started. Or, or maybe, maybe you pursue the complete other route. And you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start doing all the things that God says I'm supposed to do. And so I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to just fill my life with all these routines. And then you begin to think, look, I'm doing this. Like, I've really got this thing figured out. And then you become so prideful. No one wants to be around you. You become so self-righteous that you don't even see that you truly need God. You see, only God can save man because we can never perfectly keep God's commands. He, he finds us in our darkness, completely helpless and hopeless without him. And he meets us where we are. You see, Christ loves us enough to meet us where we are, but too much to let us stay there. And so God took on flesh. He becomes man. He reaches out his hand to do what only God can do, to stretch his nail-scarred hands across the chasm between broken man and holy God. Leads us to our final reason that only God could save because only God become man can mediate between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.15 says this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You see, only God could make us right with God and only one who had become fully man could fulfill the requirements that God's holiness demanded and attribute them to us as our substitute. He comes as our mediator. What's at stake? One theologian puts it like this. He says, if Jesus is not fully God, we have no salvation and ultimately no Christianity. But flip that truth on its head because Jesus is fully God. We have salvation. There is great hope for the truths we hold. Third observation here is that Jesus is the source of life. Verses three and four say, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. All things were made through Christ. He's the present agent in all of creation. He is the source of life, the giver of life, the author of life. Why does this matter? I love the way that Paul puts it in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. He says, For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, don't, for, don't forget this. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Christ holds all things together. He holds the entire universe together. I wonder if you ever feel like an exception to that. Do you ever feel like an exception to Christ's ever-present, sustaining power? Maybe, maybe you're a parent and you're discouraged because you're, I mean, I'm pouring myself out. I'm exhausted. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm saying the same things over and over again. I just want a nap. Like, see that Christ is the one who sustains you, is holding you together, who's ever-present in your struggle. Maybe you're anxious about, about seeing family this, this week, now, upcoming through the holidays, maybe, maybe it's finals week this week and you're struggling and you're like, I feel like I've got more things to do than I've got time in my schedule. Do you see that Christ is holding all things together? If he is able to sustain the entire solar system, understand that he is sufficient to give you all that you need. May you not try to rely on yourself this week. May you not try to, try to live out of your own power, but may you come humbly telling Christ, I, I need you. As the one who holds all things together, would you hold me together? We see that the life that he gives is it's not just physical life, but eternal life. In him was life, verse 4 says. Now, what is that telling us about Christ? Well, whenever we think about life, it's obvious that we're going to think about death. What is death? Well, we know that in the garden, God told Adam and Eve that they could eat of any tree, but if they ate of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. And what happened? They ate of it. And death came in two forms, both physical death and spiritual death. Physical death is the moment that our soul is separated from the body. You've seen that if you've ever been to a funeral and you walk up to the casket and you know it looks like them, but their soul is separated from their body. The personality is gone. The humor isn't there. You know that there's no soul. It's physical death. Spiritual death is, is different than physical death because it's not whenever our soul is separated from the body. It is whenever our soul is separated from God. You see, Adam and Eve would experience the slow, gradual process of physical death, but in the moment that they sinned against God, they immediately experienced spiritual death separated from God. And yet God, in his grace and mercy, made a sacrifice to atone for their sins and to draw them near again as a picture of what he would one day ultimately do through Christ. And here we see that in him was life, and he gives life to the full. Fourth and finally, Jesus is a light to those in the darkness. Verse 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is a light in the darkness. Maybe you read this, you can say, where is the darkness? What is the darkness? Well, we look no further than, than the world we live in, and we see that darkness exists we flip on the television or maybe scroll through our social media feeds and we see that there's darkness in the world, that racism exists, uh, that life is snuffed out before it takes its first breath, that nations rage and wars wage on. We see it in our homes. We see it in our families, conflict, discouragement. We look within our own heart. And see longings of our soul that just don't seem to ever be satisfied. To describe this all in a world, word, it would be darkness. And yet, 
here we read these wonderful words that in him was life and this life was the light of man and this light entered the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. We acknowledge the darkness in our heart and the world in which we live and with great hope say the light has come into the world and Christ has come to illuminate the darkness. On the cross Christ faced death. He said world bring your greatest enemies. Sin bring your greatest punishment. Death came to slay Christ and Christ laid death in the grave. The darkness came to the light and yet the darkness could not overcome it. But Christ was victorious in his resurrection and he reigns to give this light to the world. I remember the first Christmas with our oldest son. It was kind of the the first time that he had ever really seen Christmas lights and uh, we would, we would come downstairs in the morning before he'd even had his bottle of milk. And, you know, all the Christmas trees are, are off. We have four Christmas trees in our house. What, do you guys have more than that? So, and I love it. I, there's, there's some that are small. You're right. Yeah, they're not, they're not all, the, all the big ones. But, we, I mean, we go all out on Christmas. So we would, we would roll up to, you know, each tree, just kind of in succession. And he would say, on. And we would, you know, plug it in, hit the button on the floor, flip the switch, and immediately it would come on. I lit up the room. As soon as the light shone, the darkness could not overcome it. And we would go to the next one. He'd say, on. As I read this passage, I imagine Christ with compassion and sincerity, seeing you in darkness and coming to you and saying, on. And that this truth would take hold of your heart. You'd say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Savior has come. That you experience this great reality. And respond to the fact that perhaps the greatest gift that you would get this Christmas isn't under a tree. But it is the gift of life that could only come through Christ. Perhaps the greatest gift that you can give is the hope of this salvation and eternal life through Christ our Savior. He is the light who has come into the world, and the darkness could not overcome it. This is not just a tradition to practice, but a truth in which we behold and celebrate this year, today, and every other day of our lives. Let's pray.